0: You're listening to the work-life flow podcast, where we moms take the reins of our lives, explore our options, question the status quo and demand more from society. Here we come together to tell our stories and share tears of frustration as well as tears of joy. But most importantly, we come together to inspire you to create a work-life integration that works for you. So pour yourself your favorite beverage and come hang out with us. Welcome to Work Life Flow episode 22. For today's episode in honor of International Women's Day 2021, I have a very special and inspiring guest for you. When I read Christine's story about being offered a lower wage than a male colleague and the reasoning behind it on LinkedIn, I knew I needed to connect with her. I'm thrilled that she made the time to be on my podcast and we'll be digging into everything and anything leadership. And you know, leadership is my favorite topic. So, If you want to become a leader in your home and inspire the next generation, I want you to go check out my freebie on www.castingkirchsteiger.com forward slash checklists, because one part of being a leader in the home is to recognize the abilities, teach appropriate skills, and let them step into their potential. And doing so, you will prepare them for life and get out of this overwhelm of having to do it all. So invest the time to teach your kids how to use those checklists and then sit back and relax. I don't want to hold you up much longer, so let's get started with episode 22. And today's guest, Christine Spadafor, is an experienced public and private company board director. She has also worked extensively in the C-suites with Fortune 500 companies. A graduate of Harvard Law School and Harvard School of Public Health, Mrs. Spadafor is CEO of Spadafor Clay Group, a Harvard Square management consulting firm. She's a former partner with the Boston Consulting Group and other leading global management consulting firms and public health consultant to the United Nations. Ms. Spanafor serves on the boards of directors at Boyd Gaming Corporation and at Kindred at Home. She's also on the board of three nonprofit organizations. Christine is a regular commentator on BBC World Service Business Matters, Global Broadcast, and Podcast. She's a longtime lecturer on strategic leadership, a mentor, advocate and thought leader on women's issues mrs Spadafor is a frequent speaker at forums such as harvard medical schools international women in leadership conferences and numerous other seminars and professional events mrs Spadafor has been awarded two doctor of human letters degrees received in recognition of her professional accomplishments and service to vulnerable and at-risk populations she is a wealth of knowledge and has a ton of experience in anything and everything leadership. I am so excited that she took the time to be on my podcast today. So join me in welcoming Christine Spadafer. Hi, Christine. Thanks for coming on today. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. I'm really happy to be talking to you today because, like I said, it's a huge topic on my podcast that so many women leave the workforce because they just can't see how to make it work. And You're a leader, you're a C-suite leader, so we are really, really excited to see your point of view or hear your point of view on the podcast today. And as usual, I would like for you to start out by introducing yourself a little bit and your career path.
1: I'm Christine Spadafore, and I think the best sum of my career path is that I've taken the longest distance between two points, and it's been a great adventure. Um, In a very short summary, I actually started my career as an ICU nurse at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center. So when I see what's going on with COVID, it breaks my heart to see what my colleagues have been going through, really working on the front lines of this pandemic. So starting as an ICU nurse, I got a business degree, I got a master's in physiology from Harvard School of Public Health, a law degree from Harvard and ended up in management consulting. And so now I've made my way all the way to the boardroom.
0: And as you said, it was a long way and a windy road. Were there any key moments that defined where you were going or was it like one thing led to the next? One key moment was
1: when I was in graduate school um, at the School of Public Health. I did half of my master's degree at MIT, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. And my mentor was a professor at MIT. And he and I had published a law review article together. I hadn't even gone to law school yet. He and I also published a book together that was published by Johns Hopkins. I was focused on going to medical school. And I asked him for a letter of recommendation because we'd been co-authors. I'd been in his class and done well. And he said no. And I was stunned in the moment and asked him why he wouldn't do that since he knew my work so well. His advice was, I don't think you should go to medical school, I think you should go to law school. And the reason I think you should go to law school is because I'd worked on health policy in Washington DC prior to all of this, and he knew my work from there. And he said, I know you wanna be effective with your medicine, and if you go to law school and do certain legislative work, you'll help many, many more people than if you see patients, you know, five patients an hour, For however many years you choose to practice. And he also said something that was really prescient. He said, At some point, the health insurance companies will make you see five or six patients an hour, and you will basically be practicing medicine based on how they're going to pay you. And I don't think that's the kind of medicine you want to practice. So he took out his wallet after I said, Look, I've applied to medical school. I don't, you know, I can't apply to law school. I've spent all my disposable income applying to medical school. I basically have no money left. He took out his wallet and pulled all the cash out and pushed it across his desk to me. And he said, you apply to Harvard Law School. If you don't get in, you're not out anything. If you do get in, it's the best money you ever spent in your life. So I took the cash and shoved it in my jeans. (laughs) And scurried to get the law school application. I hand carried it to the um, admissions office on the last day, two hours before the admissions closed. And there, there we are. So I ended up going to law school instead of medical school. And I think that, you know, that goes to so many things. It goes to someone seeing your skill set perhaps better than you do. It goes to having a sponsor and a mentor who is supporting you and will give you advice about things you'd never thought of. I never thought of law school. I don't come from a family of lawyers. I'm a second-generation immigrant. So he really opened my eyes to things that I didn't think about as even being possible or even on the radar. So having the male ally, being open to opportunities that you don't even know exist in taking the risk what's the worst thing that could have happened i would have been turned down so the feeling of risk of failure is much greater than the actual failure might be so um just in that one instance a number of lessons
0: yeah i can see i think it happens a lot that we don't see like you said we don't see the skills that we have and we sometimes need an outside viewpoint yeah that's an amazing story very cool It 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 would be a very different career path for you then.
1: (laughs) I'd be working on the front lines of COVID right now. The other idea too is just being open to other opportunities. I'm sure I would have been quite happy as a physician. But what I've found for me in the law is that it's a wonderfully flexible degree I've been a CEO, I've been a management consultant, I've been a board advisor, I've been, and I am on boards of directors. So it's a degree that I've been able to apply to a number of industries in a number of ways, and particularly now thinking about risk management and regulatory compliance and ESG. I mean, lawyers are very well trained for those. So um, it's been very utilitarian.
0: Very nice. So I mentioned briefly the story about the first time I came across your profile on LinkedIn was the PowerPoint story um, where you apply it for, I think it was a board position, if I remember correctly. It almost seemed too funny, this story, if it wasn't such a sad topic. And as many of us know, women's entry level salary is 70 cents to the dollar a man earns. And It doesn't sound like much, but that problem is huge because it gets propagated throughout all your career. And then, yeah, you're not a mom, but sometimes moms then have a gap that comes on top of that. And so their earnings over their lifetime are so Mm -hmm. much lower. And I know you're a huge proponent for speaking up and asking your worth. Would you mind to share that story?
1: Yes, I'd be glad to. This is actually a somewhat recent story. It happened in the last few years. So I've got these years of experience behind me. And there was a private equity group. I have my own consulting firm. We can talk about breaking out and doing your own entrepreneurship as well, if you like. So for several years, this this, uh, private equity group had been pursuing me to work with them, not to be an employee, but basically to be an associate of the firm, if you will. And the CEO was hiring people with different skills. I've got deep expertise in healthcare and they wanted to branch into healthcare. So I was going to be their healthcare person. So there were five of us, three employees, and then another gentleman and myself who were coming in with different industry expertise, but basically doing the same job, same responsibilities, just in different industries. And for some reason, and please for your listeners, don't make the mistake I did. I waited way too long to start asking this question, way too long, so don't do what I did. For some reason, I asked the CEO if I was going to be paid the same as the other non-employee gentlemen who had the exact same responsibilities. And he said, no. I asked him why. And he said, because David's bringing intellectual property. I then asked, what does intellectual property look like? And he said, David's bringing a slide deck. So David was going to be getting a higher retainer. He was going to be getting more equity because he was bringing a slide deck. So I said to the CEO, you've been pursuing me for the longest time to come and be an associate of your firm. We've worked together in the past on other private equity deals. You know my expertise. My brain is my intellectual property. Otherwise, you wouldn't have been pursuing me so hard for so long. So either I make what David's making or my answer is no. And I got what David was
0: making. Nice. It is shocking to hear that even after so many years like you said you have huge expertise they were pursuing you and you still had to negotiate around this do you have any advice for women who are not quite as far but still would like to bring up the topic or do you have any words how could we ask for being paid the same or what we know for you know for our skill set
1: Yes. So I actually speak about women in negotiations quite frequently. And one of the things I talk about prior to going in and having that conversation is being really prepared. Finding out if you can within your company, is there a particular salary scale for the responsibilities that you have not just the title but the responsibilities that you hold because a title can be one thing and getting remuneration for that title which you know may have more responsibilities than someone else with the same title so figuring out the you know apples to apples comparison in the work and so part of being prepared is yes find out if internally you have a salary scale also and this depends on the culture of the company many times talking to your colleagues about what they're making. Now, in some places, they say that there's a prohibition against that. These are informal conversations with your colleagues, particularly your male colleagues, if you can find out. And the other is to see what you can find in terms of market rates externally. So there's data you can research before you have that conversation. And so going into the negotiation, really prepared matters. Take those emails where someone sent you an email and said, you did a fabulous job. We couldn't have done this without you. Or the emails that say, you're a critical part of this team. We never would have achieved our strategic goal had you not been part of it. So any kind of supporting documentation is also helpful to have. Go in with your portfolio. And then finally, Ideally, if you've got a mentor and a sponsor, I think the two are separate. Some people say that they're the same. I've had situations where they're separate and where they are the same as well, but someone who can also be a supporter of yours. So it's not as though you're just kind of going in alone. Um, Someone who has talked you up so that when you walk into the room, there's already an underlying understanding of your worth and value to the company. And then if you've gotten feedback before you have this negotiation, being able to demonstrate that you acted on the feedback and have improved your performance or improved your outcome, your productivity, whatever the feedback may have been. So there's lots of things you can do in preparation. So I would recommend not going in cold, but really doing your homework before you go in.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense, because then you have real data you can work with. I wanted to talk about being the only woman on the board, because I think you have had quite a few situations where that was the case. And I remember in most of the leadership training that I received, or professional development training, when we were talking about, so I was volunteering for um, the Association for Women in Science, San Diego. And I actually was on their board for a little bit, but our board is different because it's a women's association. So we are all women at the moment on the board, not on our volunteer deck. But so we used to have development courses and leadership training. But what struck me always was that it was always talked about how to get your ideas across as valid without sounding bossy or without sounding so it is it's really i don't know i didn't like that idea very much and i still don't but it's kind of a tightrope walk to get it right that's what i was told like you kind of you have to balance this really well and then a couple of months back on a kpbs radio show they analyzed weak words which women should avoid when they are in a leadership position um probably am, is in there. They mentioned stuffers, they mentioned I feel statements, etc. But I trained now as an emotional intelligence practitioner and coach. And as such, we explicitly work on soft skills, which we call essential skills. And so emotional intelligence is super important. It is the environment you create, your self-awareness, the awareness of others you have. And I think a lot of The companies who really care about the company culture, they are Mm -hmm. huge on those soft skills or emotional intelligence. Mm -hmm. And I think there's so much data now too, that authenticity, courage, and being vulnerable is much more important than if you use a stuffer or, or, I don't know. Um, So what are your thoughts about this? What would you tell women who are told to balance the tightrope walk of being assertive, but not bossy?
1: That's a really good question. There's so much from a socialization point of view and a stereotypical point of view that works against us on that still. Let me mention about the weak words. One of the words I've worked to take out of my vocabulary and coach other women to take out is the word just. I was just thinking or I just want to ask. I just wanted to, you know, remind you it's, I think it's a weak word. I think it's apologetic. You don't need it. You don't yes. need it. Yes. Um, the other thing is, again, this is based on studies. So, so everything I'm gonna say is backed up by research. From a socialization point of view to your point about bossy, one of the things that we sometimes do, is we'll make apologies. I'm sorry to ask this, but, right, So we're, we're diminishing ourselves. So being conscious to try to take those things out, I think, helps strengthen one's position either from a conscious bias point of view or in an unconscious bias point of view. Being the only woman At the table, it happens so frequently now, I don't even notice it anymore. But a couple things about being at the table, it depends on the position you have. So if you've been invited to the table, you're there because you're expected to participate. And if it's a client meeting, for example, I would, depending on my role, if I was the senior person working with the client, I would position myself at the table right across from the client, from the key client. So I was working at one of the global entertainment and media companies in L.A., and my client was the global CFO. So when we would have meetings, I would make sure I was sitting directly across from him as opposed to next to him because if I'm sitting next to him and we're talking, the rest of the group won't hear it. So it's about positioning yourself literally. um, And again, this is an unconscious thing, literally positioning yourself at the table in a strong seat. If you are not one of the key speakers, I have found that sitting on one of the ends where when you speak, everyone will see you as opposed to sitting along one of the one sides. Again, if it's appropriate, depending on your position and why you've been asked Mm -hmm. to the meeting. Other thing is you need to get in the conversation early. Now, it's not speaking just for speaking's sake, but if it's, let's say, an hour-long meeting and you make your first comment 10 minutes before the meeting's over, people don't even know you've been in the room. Again, you're at the table because there's an expectation that you will participate. You're there because you're a valued member of this group. But sometimes we're hesitant to speak up because we think to ourselves, I need to say the most brilliant thing. I don't want to sound stupid. I don't want to make a point that's going to be shot down. You know, So I don't want to be embarrassed. So sometimes we put these challenges in our own way. And are hesitant to show our confidence, our smarts, and our worth at that moment in the meeting. Let me just mention one other thing. I'm a small woman. I'm five foot four. I have a small voice. I weigh just a little over a hundred pounds. I don't take up a lot of space. So in these meetings, I'm conscious about holding space that's bigger than I am, because I'm in a room with a lot of six-foot guys. So how do I make my presence known? And again, this is an unconscious thing for many people, but how do I make my presence known so that I'm a marker in the room just as much as they are? One of the ways I do that is how I enter the room. I was trained on this. I probably walked in and out of a room being videotaped and I hated being videotaped probably 50 times. But it's really, you know, shoulders back, head up, walking in with confidence. Because if you walk in like you're not supposed to be there, if you walk in without confidence or almost sort of apologetic to be there, you may possibly be treated that way. Again, subconsciously. Not that people are trying to necessarily be... Mm -hmm insulting to you, but you need to be a marker at that table.
0: Yeah, it makes a lot of sense, I think. Let's stick stick with the board a little bit. Um, You said that you sometimes don't even notice that you're the only woman, but right now um, a new law passed that the publicly traded companies, they have to have a diverse board of directors. It's a huge step towards diversity and inclusion becoming a reality, but what are your (laughs) thoughts on quota? or to have a certain number of women in the board of directors and minority minorities, how do you handle pushback or worse negative talk about why a person was invited to a board due to a quota?
1: First of all, there are armies of women and people of color who are qualified to sit on boards. And yes, there is a big diversity push. About quotas, I'm of two minds. One is... I think it's too bad that quotas need to even be imposed, that companies that do not have diverse boards are failing to see the benefit of having diversity of thought, diversity of gender, diversity of ethnicity, because there's a lot of studies that show, and it's this is hard to quantify, so I know some people uh, push back on this, but boards that have women on them typically are more profitable. And I I know there's a lot of pushback on that. So it's disappointing that some companies don't see the value in basically seeing seeing the value of these people, but also just basically doing the right thing. So that's one side. The flip side on, on the quotas, again, armies of qualified people. I think it's unfortunate that they need to set numbers because one byproduct of that might be and a woman actually told me about this the other day is you're there just because you're the woman or you're there because you're the person of color. Translation, you're here cuz you're a token and you're here cuz we sort of had to put you here. Mm-hmm. So the quota might also cause those members who are selected under that process to be viewed as less than, that they're basically there because the board needed to check a box. So those are my, you know, mm-hmm. there's a, there's a real dichotomy for me on that. Now, an interesting thing that is getting lots of attention way overdue in my opinion for boards is ESG, environmental, social and governance. It's now turning into a global movement, and a global expectation. By that, I mean investors, consumers, employees, vendors, communities of companies have an expectation that the board will be diverse in a number of ways. And so because there's potentially financial implications now of not having a diverse board, that may now spur some boards to have more diversity. I think it's unfortunate if the driver for that has been financial only because boards will now be, by some institutional investors, evaluated on the diversity of their boards. And if the investors think the board's not diverse enough, the investors may not give as much money to the company. So there may now be some financial implications of lack of diversity on boards.
0: I like that. quotas kind of are necessary at the moment to level the playing field. And they're only there because it didn't happen naturally, right? I mean, it's not. But yeah, it's true. Like, it comes with the stigma. You're here because we needed you. Mm -hmm. So I guess the people who fill such a space of a quota, they might have it difficult in the boardroom getting their ideas across sometimes, I guess.
1: Yes, and it goes back to if you're in the boardroom, you're there now because you deserve to be there, although they may have given you the message that you're a token. But look, we're smart and we're strategic. And ideally, in not too long of time, That tokenism is pushed aside by the colleagues seeing how valuable it is for the company and for just diversity of thought on the board to have that person there.
0: Yes. And then the other thing that I wanted to mention with the boardroom are just recently you you published another thing on LinkedIn about... A misogynistic comment and you say that the more experience you gained the better you got at handling those discriminatory comments and behaviors and you talk a lot about having a male ally in the boardroom so what would you tell a woman who's starting in a a career in leadership positions on either what to do when these comments happen or how to find an ally
1: yeah that's that and that can be potentially tricky in terms of how you push back on that it depends on who makes the comment and how one responds. I want to start with the male ally. You know, sometimes, and as you're coming up, you know, it's easier for me to push back now, just because I've got decades of experience behind me. But I can think back, you know, early on when I was coming up through the ranks, particularly in management consulting, if someone would say something to me that was particularly inappropriate. I know I was hesitant to say anything back. Could it be a career ender? Will I be ostracized? Will I not be put on good projects? So I think those fears are real when you're trying to come up through the ranks. What I did in those circumstances is I would go to my mentor and have a conversation about it. And sometimes my mentor would then have the conversation. If it was, for example, with a senior partner. If I'm, you know, sort of low on the totem pole in a in a firm and a senior partner says something to me, it's important to respond and to do so respectfully in a way, and again, this is you know, this is hard. You don't want to jeopardize your career in an extreme case. Going forward, so I would take those things to my mentor or to a senior person that maybe is supervising my work right now, as opposed to a mentor, but someone that you can talk to about this. I'll give you one real life example. I was not yet a partner, I was a partner in three global management consulting firms, uh, sometimes just one of four women globally (laughs) as a female partner. But when I was coming up through the ranks in one of them, I was called to set a project right that had gone off the rails a little bit in Europe and so I had a number of people working under me and I would come back to the states maybe once a month and I remember running into one of the partners in the hallway one day when I was back in the states And he said to me, now remember, this is global strategy consulting firms. He says to me, you don't have a strategic bone in your body. Now, again, that's a problem if you're in a strategy consulting firm. I don't remember what I said back to him. But again, certainly nothing inflammatory. I'm sure I said something, but I have no recollection what it was. But here's what I did. I knew what I was doing on this project was valuable to the client and to the firm, I took his comment and used it as rocket fuel, and I thought, I'm just going to prove you wrong. So I had a choice I could shirk down and say, Oh my gosh, I'm just really not cut out for this, but I knew I was, or I could say, I'm just going to show you how wrong you are, and that's what I did. And I made partner in three years. Amazing,
0: <laughs> yeah, it's true. I mean. I guess it is true. You could take both ways. You could shrink and say, mm, Start questioning yourself and your capabilities, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, I love that you took it the other direction. That's very nice. That's uh, a good story for us. So you mentioned mentors. How do you find mentors, or is it something you always were looking for? Did you kind of reach out to people mm-hmm. or or was it more like organic that they grew to be your mentors?
1: Yeah, in my experience, my mentorships were really much more organic. Um, they were, in some cases, my supervisor. In some cases, people I might have worked on a project with previously, and we had stayed in relationship. So it wasn't anything formal, like, I want you to be my mentor. So I was very, very fortunate in that respect. Some companies have structured mentorship programs. I read an interesting study not too long ago that reported that only about 16% of those mentorship programs are successful. So what does that mean? Sometimes a mentor, and I've seen this in some companies where I've worked, if someone, some senior person just might have a little bit of extra time, so they're going to put the junior person with them, but they may not have any real commonality. They may be focused on different industries or the, the senior person might just have kind of sporadic time. I think if you're going to have a formal mentorship relationship, again, mine were informal, but if you're going to have a formal mentor relationship, there needs to be you know scheduled time together, uninterrupted time together. And it's a big commitment for both. Mm -hmm. So, the senior person needs to sign on for it as a real program, as as a real initiative they're going to do. And the mentee also needs to be respectful of the mentor's time and go in with an agenda, maybe even sent in advance, but certainly a list of topics that they want to discuss so that that time together can be as productive as possible On the informal side, I would sometimes have lunch with my people that I considered to be my mentors, or I'd pop into their office, or I'd go talk to them about this senior partner who told me I have no strategic bones in my body. And so I found it for me, again, much more helpful to have, I just grew up with informal mentors. But if you do have a company-wide mentorship program the company needs to really be dedicated to it as well, as opposed to, okay, let's just put these people together because so and so is available. So just be a little careful if you've got one in your company to make sure that it's actually working for you.
0: Yeah, I've heard of those. When I was at UCSD, as a UC San Diego, they were trying to build up those mentorship programs for, I was a postdoc back then. And it was really difficult to find a mentor because, like you said, it's a time commitment and it, it's it's contractual, really. So, so if you want to yeah. find a mentor, take it seriously and show up.
1: <laughs> yeah, if I could just mention one other thing about
0: mentors, sometimes, because I have a number of
1: mentees, primarily young women who are you know still in MBA programs or, or, or coming up, you can have more than one mentor. And I think sometimes people might forget that identifying those gaps where you want to learn and fill those, get those leadership gaps. You know, maybe one person is great for one of those areas and another person is great for another one of those areas. So you can have more than one mentor. One of the things I hear from a number of my female mentees is that in many of their organizations, there are not many senior women at the top. So there's not a lot of role models. So finding a female mentor. Inside the company, sometimes they've been telling me can be a challenge. So mentors can be outside of your organization as well. They can be both men and women. And so your mentor is someone who's going to give you feedback and help um, accelerate your professional development and have real conversations with you. So you need to be open to taking that hard feedback too. It's really the only way you're going to grow. Not to say we like hearing it, but it's it's helpful to us. So multiple mentors, men and women inside the organization, outside the organization.
0: Yes, no, absolutely. I think, and feedback is really valuable for different reasons. Like we already talked about sometimes other people recognize skills, but sometimes they also recognize our gaps, right? And so we have to take that in and, and start growing where we lack. Absolutely. I loved everything you said so far. I think it's, it's really exciting to have your point of view on the podcast. As you know, my audience is mainly moms who would like to find a way to advance their careers, but also enjoy their family time. And as I mentioned, you're not a mom, but the promise of my podcast is that everybody has a story to share and that we can learn from each other. And so, yeah, I thought you would be the best guest I could find so far for leadership and corporate culture. And also I would like my listeners to consider that it's not always being a mom, like even not being a mom. You don't live in isolation, right? You have family relations that need, need time and nurturing. So I, with the idea of diversity, I want to open it up to other guests. I had men on the show, for example, because I think we need to, to look at this from different points of view and get more information and see how we can better our systems and better our corporate culture. Also, what we can do about work-life integration. And so my podcast is called called Work-Life Flow. So my last question to you is, what does work-life integration mean for you? And have you found a balance that works? Or could you share some key steps that you took to gain a satisfying work-life integration?
1: Thank you for thinking that. I've actually figured out the (laughs) work-life integration. It's 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 an ongoing work in progress. Like many of the listeners, you know, I work a lot. As you mentioned, I don't have children, but I was CEO of a nonprofit for abused, abandoned, and homeless kids. So I love to say that during my tenure there, I had 2,000 children. <laughs> um, and I, I learned so much, so much from them. I want to answer your question, but let me go back to an experience that I, that I had when I was coming up through the ranks. So this is early on in my career many of my friends were having children and a weekend project came up and so there were a group of us in the room and one of the male leads to get the work done was basically going around saying you know who can be here Saturday morning so there's lots of well I take my kids to soccer and so of course completely respect that and he said out loud well, Christine, you don't you don't have kids, so why don't you do this? And I said to him, just because I don't have children doesn't mean I don't have a life. So I think it's a challenge, you know, it's particularly challenging for women with, with children. I'm seeing it with my friends during the pandemic. A number of my friends have left their positions to stay home and zoom classes with their kids. So I still have to remind myself about work-life balance and I'm not very good at it a lot of the times you know I should be outside walking around more Mm -hmm. um I you know there. I'm trying to be more disciplined about doing reading for enjoyment I love to read I love to cook but sometimes I just forget like oh gosh it's six o'clock or seven o'clock and I need to eat (laughs) so so (laughs) I'm working I'm working on it and I I can't I can't fully identify with the moms but I can identify with the struggle of trying to find work life balance. I've been trying to support a number of my elderly friends during COVID. I'm getting them to hospital visits, getting them to vaccine visits, getting them to, actually yesterday to a doctor visit. It's easy for me to do that because it's giving to other people, right? We're such givers. And we're so kind to so many people and we're there when our friends or our family need something. But when it comes to thinking about taking care of ourselves, which is, I think, a big part of work-life balance, we usually put ourselves last. So it's just a thank you for the question, because it's always a good reminder, even if you're a mom and you can one of my good friends is a mom and I, you know, she's got three little ones and. She's a physician and she's just frazzled all the time between working the front lines and taking care of her kids. And so I'm just encouraging her, like, just take a bath. You know, so sometimes we need to help each other and support each other and remind each other that we need to do some self-care and not always just care for
0: others. And what I heard you say, also boundaries, like having those boundaries of what do I do for work and when, when do I take care of myself and what do I let happen to myself? Yes. Because those are choices, right? But it is true. I think, I don't know if it's, again, socialization or our nurture, uh, our nature, sorry, <laughs> our nature that we are so caring. But I think, yeah, women struggle a lot with these boundaries of, hey, I have to take care of myself before I can take care of others. Right, we need to be well to be well for others. So it's
1: it's just a good it's a good reminder. And again, I think we do need to support each other in this because to your point about boundaries, and it just sometimes doesn't hit our consciousness that we need to do something for us because we're nurturers. That's what we do, and you know, thank goodness for that because it makes a world a kinder place. And we, you know, as much kindness right now as we can get, but we also need to be kind to ourselves.
0: That's beautiful. (laughs) Let's leave it there. Let's be kind to ourselves. Let's make that a promise. Well, thank you so much for coming on. I think it was really, really super valuable for my listeners to get your insights. So thanks again for taking the time to talk with me. And if the listeners, if there are some that would like to connect with you, would you like to share where they can find you? Sure, they can find me on LinkedIn is probably the, the easiest
1: place. I also have a website, but a new website's going up in a couple weeks. Um, so people can reach me through com because that's up now, but a new one will be up in a couple weeks. But LinkedIn typically is, is the easiest way to find me. And I'd be delighted to connect with your listeners. Thank you so much. Well, thank you for having me. What a delight. And to all the moms out there, thank you for doing such incredible hard work every single day making lives better for your kids and your family and you're you're the bedrock of our society and um we're so grateful for everything that you're doing and particularly how um you're showing such strength and steadiness during these very difficult times so being a mom's the hardest job in the world and so kudos to all of you and thank you for everything you're doing to make the world a kinder place
0: thank you so much christine Thank you. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Work-Life Flow. As always, you can find all links and websites mentioned in the show notes. Make sure to get your copy of the four must-have checklists for kids, so you can sit back and relax while they are getting ready on their own at kerstinkirchsteiger.com. That is www.k-e-r-s-t-i-n-k-i-r-c-h-s-t-e-i-g-e-r.com. And remember, keep being brave and share your story.